0: thinking about the last five years that we've worked together, and there have been any number of times that he's introduced me to groups that I was going to share a little bit with, but I'm not sure I've ever gotten to introduce you before. Um, Yeah, it is pretty scary, but it's, of course, I I have to limit myself because he'll be up after me, and Dave's one of those kind of people, you can't try too hard to get him because he'll get you a whole lot worse and make you pay. When I thought about that, about the introductions that Dave has made of me or some of the rest of our staff, um, they really run the gamut. There have been times when he has introduced me to an audience that he wanted me to speak to that he said such kind words about was crime by the time I was trying to stand up and speak to a group. And then there have been other times, like our spring wow this year, some of you that came in as brand-new students in January, and we all were up there in Hotchkiss Lounge, and the whole staff is lined around the back of the room. And Dave gets in those weird moods once in a while, where he just thinks it's hysterical to just say whatever weird thing comes into his mind about the person he's introducing. And those of us in the back of the room, we could look around, and you could see the ones who hadn't been introduced yet were kind of fidgety. It's like, by the time he gets to me, what in the world is he going to say? When I thought about introducing Dave today and why I would invite him to come and be the, um, the man that I know out of all the men, both on our campus and off our campus, that I would um, want to invite him to come and share with you some about male-female relationships from a man's perspective, I thought about the fact that Dave and I discuss a lot of times how we really have no desire to promote people up front, either as speakers or authors or any kind of way, Um, who simply have a message to give but don't exemplify that message in their own lives. We really desire to present people to you, and we prefer to listen to people that we really believe that there's more than just a message, but there's a lifestyle there. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about Dave. I tried to think about little vignettes or little pictures that I would have in my mind if I were going to describe him to someone about, in terms of male-female relationships in particular. Um, One of the things that I have always appreciated about Dave in the five or so years I've known him um, is his relationship with his wife. Those of you who've been around him, he always speaks well of Kim. Um, He's very honest about their relationship and honest sometimes when they're having conflict in their relationship. But even at those times, um, he never talks about that situation at her expense. He always speaks well of her. Um, I've never appreciated men who stand up publicly and constantly make jokes at the expense of their wives, and I've always appreciated that Dave doesn't do that. Um, I've been with him when Kim's not there and how he talks about her, and I've spent a lot of time with them together, too. Um, Dave and Kim and their boys and Kelly and I took four day, a four-day vacation together during spring break when you were gone, and, and that was even another opportunity for me to see how he relates to women and particularly to his wife. I have um, been touched on a number of occasions when there have been opportunities with um, a lot of times I think probably with WOW and with new students coming in where Dave, there was an opportunity for somebody to give a devotional or somebody to speak, somebody to talk about student life policy when he was even the logical person to do that. And as the vice president of our department, he was the one that um, the students would have looked to for that credibility. Um, And it's really touched me on several occasions when he's chosen not to do that and he's asked me to do that because he wanted the students to know me and to respect me and for me to have credibility with you all, knowing that he would have other opportunities later on. And I feel like there have been many times when he's offered me an opportunity for ministry, really at some sacrifice to himself in that sense. He's also a guy as I move from just one different vignette to another that sometime last year when I didn't show up at work until noon um, because our garage door at home had broken and we had been lifting it by hand for several days and I um, probably caught something in my shoulder or back one day doing that and as uh, got up the next morning and had to pretty much crawl from the bed to the, the painkillers in the bathroom and didn't make it over here until noon. and. Um, when he asked me what was the matter and I explained it, it was probably around 5 or 6 o'clock that evening after I got home that he showed up in his jeans with his tool kit and fixed the garage door for me. Um, a certain sensitivity to. Oh. I felt that way too, okay? A real sensitivity to some of the needs of single women who don't have men at their homes to help them do that kind of thing. At the same time, being a single woman and having worked for many years, um, secular situations for a while and quite a few years now in um, Christian circles, um, as a single woman, I've worked for many years alongside married men. And one of the things I really appreciate about Dave is while um, our friendship is extremely close, um, I've had the experience in the past where one or two guys that I worked with um And I'm not talking sexual immorality here, but I'm talking where they overstepped the bounds of just what was appropriate between a single woman and a married man who worked together and where all of a sudden the relationship became very uncomfortable and it was tainted and distance had to be put there and things were never quite the same again. And I appreciate Dave because he's never done anything like that and I trust him in that area. I've had the situation in the last few years where there was a person on campus who really deliberately set out to completely slander me. And um, that's one of the ways that Davis greatly impacted my life, to move into that situation and to say, um, I will not allow this to happen, it's not right, and I'll take steps to put a stop to this. But even in that situation, even in, a, in some sense an attempt to defend and to protect me, that he would pursue doing that in a loving and a righteous way and never to be unkind or abusive to the other person that he was seeking to be very firm with. I've had the experience in helping to lead a missions team to Russia with Christy Duckett and um, thought about the summer that Dave came and spent 10 days at the end of our trip with us. We were It's a hard trip. we were very much all of us in need of some encouragement. And um, I think about a lot of Christian men that I know who, would have thought, well, their um, macho view of that whole thing would be, well, they guys I've decided and they're out there leading teams, and if I'm only going to get to visit one team this summer, I've got to go visit a team that's led by one of my guys. And Christy, it meant a lot to Christy and me and our friendship with Dave that he chose to come and to support us during that time and to encourage us. It's also Dave who last fall was the one who suggested encouraged us to have a special week of women's events this week. So... Um, With several of the women on our staff, we've talked and prayed about the chapels and the retreat and various things for quite a long time, but it really was at his recommendation that he wanted us to do something special for the gals. And particularly as we thought about the limited um, kind of budget that we have and what we could do for you that would be the best that we could do on the amount of money that we had, he was the one also who volunteered to get a team of guys together to come and do the grocery shopping and do the preparation of the dinner for us um, at Oxnard on Saturday and serve it to us. And I don't know too many men that I think would be the vice president of a college and head of their whole department who would volunteer and graciously come and serve us in that way. And lastly, um, one of the interesting things about Dave, if if you get to know him very well, is that you'll find out that um, he is a person who has um, an incredible, powerful drive to be right about things. The, um, the thing that is, that's good for him about that and very frustrating to some of the rest of us who work around him is that about 99.9% of the time he is right, and that gets real aggravating sometimes. <laughs> And we had a little situation in our office just recently um, where there was a little mystery involved. And we were all kind of taking guesses about what the solution was to the mystery, and Dave had his guess, and we all had ours, and um, he was so sure that he was right. And it was about 5 or 6 o'clock in the afternoon after he'd left to go home when there were three or four of us still there, and we found the solution to the mystery. And I'm telling you, the most exciting thing about it was probably not even the solution to the mystery, but that he was wrong. <clears throat> we just had the best laugh. We considered getting up a great huge banner and having it all across the office when it came in the next morning. Dave, for once, you are wrong. <laughs> the reason I'm telling you that is because I want to tell you one more thing about him, and that really ties in. Most people who have such a need to be right are often people who... Um, When they are wrong, they refuse to admit that, and they refuse to humble themselves before somebody else and ask forgiveness or to admit that they were wrong. And one of the things, he probably won't ever even remember telling me this, and I think it was sometime last year, but one of the things that touched me the most about him was a situation he was telling me about sometime last year, about um, a day that he had worked at the college all day, And he had gone home to have dinner with Kim and the boys, and he was going to leave shortly after dinner to come back, and I think it was to teach a class here on campus. And I don't even remember what the situation was, but while they were having dinner together, at some point he got upset with Kim about something and um, really snapped at her and I think was really critical of her in front of the boys and then ended up getting up and leaving the dinner table and kind of leaving that tense situation and coming back to the college to teach his class on Bible and theology. <laughs> and and he was able to teach for a while, but he ended the class early because he knew that if he taught to the end of the class and then went home, the boys would already be in bed. And so he ended the class early and he went home and he called his boys over to where his wife was and in front of the boys said, I just want you to know that I was wrong in how I treated your mother at dinner tonight, and I need to ask her forgiveness, and I need to apologize to her, and I need you boys to hear that. And I think that these are some of the things that show you the kind of man that he is, the kind of man that he is in relationships with women, with his wife, with those of us he works with on staff here and why we appreciate him so much and gives you a little bit of an idea of why I would desire to invite him to come and share with you today. And I would ask you to welcome him.
1: (laughs) Anything I say from this point on is certainly going to be downhill, I tell you. I had two great fears coming today. One would be that Michelle would stand up here and and uh, say that we want to sing this verse, all girls, and this verse. I was really sweating it. The
0: other,
1: the other fear was that my my wife would show up and and say that this is all a lie. Um, she's not here, is she? I uh, tried to call every potential babysitter I knew and threatened them. So. Thank you, Betty. Betty is... uh, uh, When I give my testimony, there are several people that Lord has used to impact me through the years. And and, uh, generally, it is my privilege to share that the two key people in my life are both women, which is not real typical and usual. Uh, The first one is my wife. When my wife and I first started dating in college, um, she was a much older Christian than I was at the time. And uh, through the first few months and years... She really discipled me more than I discipled her and uh, really gave me a lot of spiritual insight and wisdom. Uh, She's very patient and did it in such a way that she didn't do that so as to press me down for her to be the leader of the relationship, but to build me up and and give me strength and courage to be the leader, which is a real hard thing to do. Um, The other person, of of course, is Betty and how the Lord has used her in my life through the last five years to really help me understand what it means to to be a godly man and, and leader. And I so much appreciate both of them. This morning, uh, I'd like to start by asking you, if you would, to kind of picture with me an ad in a newspaper. The ad goes like this. Attention, men women who have a heart for the ultimate adventure. A position available for those who thrive on challenge. Only half the population have qualities necessary to survive in this field. Of the half who continue in our employ, only 20, 20% are truly successful. In fact, current figures reveal that the attrition rate is highest among those agents who have been with us for 20 years or more. Tenacity and commitment are a must. Only full-time positions are available. Our agents are never off the clock. The majority of our positions will, uh, our positions eventually will include supervision of junior executives. However, few prove to have the right stuff to be successful trainers. The educational requirements Are really unnecessary. In fact, a college degree most often is a detriment. Previous experience is a hindrance. Nonetheless, we are especially interested in applicants whose parents were accomplished agents themselves. If you have skills in communication, personal management, risk management, economics, psychology, sociology, education, finance, information management, decision-making, food service, purchasing, transportation, housing, nutrition, travel, entertainment, scheduling, industrial cleaning, interior design, medical supplies, inventory control, and are a team player and a committed romantic call today for an interview. And, of course, that would be the appropriate ad to place in a paper if we were trying to recruit spouses, wouldn't it? Because that pretty much is sort of an overview of what it's like. To be a, a husband and a wife in the world that we live in today, it, it's amazing that how difficult it really is to be the person that God designed us to be in relationship to a male or in relationship to a female. Most often those relationships are, as I just read to you, one of, of statistical tragedy and of those who even remain married. We talk about that a lot, but even those that press through the stuff to stay together legally, the... Counselors and sociologists tell us that only 20% of those are really truly happy and fulfilled in their relationship and would like to remain in it if given the choice. It reminds me of, you know, that conflict between the man and the woman it reminds me of the story of Winston Churchill. Maybe you've heard this that at a time during the uh, height of the war effort. There was a point and counterpoint being given at Parliament and Winston Churchill was pressing very forcefully his particular point and in the midst of his... Uh, dialogue or monologue, a lady member of the parliament stood up and said, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I would give you poison in your tea. To which Mr. Churchill returned and replied, Madam, let me assure you, if you were my wife, I would drink it. (laughs) Conflict seems to be the norm, doesn't it? Explanations of love and romance I've written down have uh, ranged from the infusion of the gods to the result of a disease. Uh, the number one book on love last year said this, and I thought this was interesting. Marriage is a psychological and spiritual journey that begins in the ecstasy of attraction, meanders through the rocky stretch of self-discovery, and culminates in the creation of an intimate, joyful, lifelong human uh, union. And then the author goes on to say, and this is a quote, A love, love in marriage is defined as a voluntary union of two individuals based upon romantic attraction that is stirred by unconscious needs that have their roots in unsolved childhood issues. And so this person says that romance is all about psychoanalyzing each each of the individuals. There's another psycho, this is an interesting long word, psychopharmacological, I think is the word, uh, definition of love. And they say that there are three chemical phases to love if we're to understand what love really is in a man-woman relationship. There's, first of all, the attraction phase of the relationship. The brain releases dopamine and norepinephrine. I I don't know if I'm saying these right. Two of the body's many neurotransmitters. These neurotransmitters help contribute to a rosy outlook on life. A rapid pulse. I always wondered what that was. It's my dopamine. Maybe that's where the word dope came from. I don't know. Anyway, increased energy and a sense of heightened perception. During the second phase, known as the resting phase... The lovers want to be together every moment of the day. The brain increases in its production of endomorphines and the encephalines, natural narcotics, enhancing a person's sense of security and comfort. The third stage is the mystical oneness phase is caused by the increase of the production of neurotransmitters called serotonin. Uh, so this author says that really the bottom line is that everybody is sort of high on drugs when they're dating and are being driven by chemical imbalances. Another one is the empathy altruistic hypothesis. This view comes from a guy named Thomas Hobbes, and in a popular book uh, that was written last year, says the person loves because of the benefit that he or she gets out of it. I love you not because of who you are, but because of what you do for me. Self-interest, then, is the basis of all behavior, even love. And then there's the evolutionary view. We instinctively select mates who will enhance the survival of the species. I'm I'm just reading what they say. Um, Men are drawn to classically beautiful women, clear skin, bright eyes, shiny hair, good bone structure, red lips, and rosy cheeks, not because of fat or fashion, but because these qualities indicate youth and robust health and signs that a woman is in the peak of her childbearing years, according to this author. Now, you think that that's ridiculous, but of course, there is some biblical foundation to this. And of course, in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, you know, the lover says of his wife, How beautiful you are, my darling. Your hair is like the flock of, of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like the flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Find those teeth. Your lips are like this scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples like pomegranates. Now, there's a compliment for you. Your, um, Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with strength, your breast, Well, anyway, you get the idea. Um, So maybe there is something to the evolutionary concept. But in the evolutionary concept, women select men for different biological reasons. According to this author, women choose men with pronounced alpha qualities, the ability to dominate other males, and strength to bring home more than his share of the kill. The assumption is that male dominance ensures the survival of the family group, more than youth or beauty. Thus, a 50-year-old chairman of the board is the human equivalent of a silver-backed male gorilla, according to this author. And of course, Song of Solomon says something about that. His head is purest gold, his hair wavy, is black like a raven, his arms are like rods of gold, and his body is like polished ivory, his legs are like pillars of marble. So anyway, he goes on and on and on. There are many explanations of what love really, truly is. In the midst of all of that, Whenever the Apostle Paul seems to have the opportunity to, under the inspiration of the Spirit, to address Christians, somewhere in that message, he chooses to talk about love and what it is. It's not just a subject that the world writes about and buys books to read about. It's obviously a subject that the world writes songs and sings songs about all the time. In fact, almost every popular song that you can think of somewhere is addressing the issue of love between a man and a woman. It's remarkable just how much is being said about love and yet how little is understood about it. And I think it's in that context, not only in our day, but in Paul's day, that the Apostle Paul frequently takes the opportunity to talk about love. And as you know, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul says to the Christians there in Ephesus that a man must love his wife even as Christ loved the church. Love is to be at the core of the male-female relationship. But even there, he goes on to say that there are many things that pass for love that aren't genuinely the real McCoy. In the book of Romans, he does the same thing. After spending 11 chapters talking about deep issues of theology, he comes to chapter 12 and he says to the Christians that he is addressing, "Don't let the world press you into its mold. Don't allow yourself to just follow in the stream of what the world thinks and does but be transformed, be an entirely new person, identify with Jesus Christ by the renewing of your mind. And right after he says that, it's very interesting, right after he says that, he launches into a discussion on the subject of love. In chapter 13, verse 8, he says, Moreover, it is is more important for you to owe someone love and to give them love than anything else. If all of the law was to be condensed into one thing, it is this, to love one another. And so as Paul begins in chapter 12 to talk about what it means to live Christianly, he launches into the subject of love. I mean, it's imperative, not just because of all the mixed messages that we're getting from the world around us and all the confusion, but it's also imperative because we, as people who claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, more than any other group, should understand what love is and what it looks like and what it means and how it fleshes itself out in the relationships that we, that we enjoy and so much desire. And that's, and that's Paul's intention as well. And my, my, I guess, beginning challenge to you this morning is this. I don't think that there's any greater joy in life than to experience love with another person in the way that God intends it to be. Conversely, there is no greater hell that could possibly be experienced than to find yourself someday in a marriage relationship with a man who is not committed to growing in his understanding and experience of what it means to love you as Christ commands him to in fact a, a survey that i read in preparation for this asked a group of girls what is the greatest fear that you have in marriage and, and you'd probably you'd probably guess it i mean i guessed it and that is that her greatest fear is that she will wake up and find out to her horror that the man she thought she married is not the man she actually married and what a tragedy, what a frightening thing. In fact, it was the subject of a, a, a blockbuster movie recently titled Deceit, where Goldie Hawn woke up after nine years of marriage to begin to come to the gradual realization and the horror and the living hell, realizing that this is not the person that I thought I married. And so I thought what would be really good this morning is for us to take a look in Scripture for just a few minutes at a description of what love is in the way that Christ defines it. And I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12 to do that with me. And I'm, my desire is not to give us a real tight exposition here, but I think that this is important. What you're looking for in a man, and what a man is offering you, must both be what God desires for you. you understand that? It's not just what the guy is offering, but it's also what it is that you're desiring and wanting that must come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because I think it's really it goes both ways. It's not just a problem that guys have, in that they are so far from their biblical understanding of love that they are actually offering something that is such a cheap imitation. It is something also that you're wanting from them, the cheap imitation. And why would that be? For the same reason on on both parts. And that is because the man and the woman many times are driven by selfishness, self-centeredness. And not too far from what one of our authors said here in the introduction. That is that what we want out of the relationship is for something good for me. Rather than for what Christ desires in the relationship. And so it's a real struggle. You're going to fight that. Every moment of your marriage, you're going to fight the battle between what you want and what Christ really wants in that relationship. And trying to make your husband into the person that will give you what you want. And provide... You with what you want rather than what Christ wants for the relationship. You'll feel that struggle every single day to make him into that person. And the guy, if he is, is a product of our modern culture, will very much want to be that kind of person for you. First of all, he'll want to try to be the person who provides all of those things for you. And he'll try to go through the illusion that he can answer all of the questions and that he can provide for all your needs. And then he will also, in his flesh, do the same thing that you're doing and look to you to give him what he desires, failing to really be focused and committed to what Christ desires in a relationship. I mean, that's, that's the typical marriage today. Really, I mean, it really is sad. But when you sit down with couples, that is generally what you're looking at. Is that two, are two people committed to getting what they desire out of life and looking to the spouse to provide that for them. And in contrast to that, the Apostle Paul says what we must really desire and understand about love is what Christ says about it and desires for us. And so as he launches into the book of Romans, he said, after talking about the theological issues and then coming to Romans chapter 13 and saying, you know, the the most important thing is that you love one another. That is more important than anything else. All of the law, all the scriptures can be condensed into that one idea. He then goes on in in chapter 12, verses 9 and following to say, let me give you a description, a relational description of what this kind of love that God intends you to experience and to pursue after looks like. Now before, let me give you one last kind of disclaimer. What I'm not saying to you is that this is what the person must be before you marry him or else the population is going to diminish immediately because none of us will get married if we're waiting for this. Because I'm not this way... And neither are you, and neither is the person that you're going to marry. In fact, if you think you're this way, and if he thinks he's this way, you're really in trouble. Rather, what I'm saying is, and I think this is the point of of Paul's teaching here, is that this must be what we're after. And that we're striving to, to pursue and to battle our flesh against whenever the flesh gets in the way of these things. And so what you're looking for in a man is a person who is growing in his understanding and committed to this description of love. Does that make sense? Not what is there, but what he hopes will be there and is willing to give his life to Christ in the ways that he needs to in order for those things to be true of him. Now let's look at this description. Again, kind of in a loose exposition. As Paul begins in chapter 12, verse 2, let me just give you the background. "...and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable." Then drop down to verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. In this opening statement, I believe Paul swallows up everything that he's about to say in the rest of the chapter. And what he starts with is this thought. There is nothing so dest- more destructive or reprehensible to the Christian life than the pretension of love. And if I were to give a title to this this morning, I would call it Betrayed with a Kiss." Because there's a lot that is trying to pass for love, and tells you is love that is not love. Sort of like my my daddy in the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia used to say, just because the cat has kittens in the oven doesn't make them biscuits. And what he what he's trying to say by that profound statement is, is there's a lot of things that's trying to pass for the real McCoy that really isn't. And Paul is saying, you know, one of the one of the greatest tragedies in the most wicked sins of the Christian life, is a person who is trying to convince himself or others that this is real love, genuine Christ-like love, and it's a fake. It's pretension. And so the first thing he says is, love must not be with hypocrisy. If you reverse that, love should be according to the truth of what love really is as defined by Jesus Christ. Right? That's the first corrective to what we face in our lives and in our relationships and in our culture. Love must always be brought back into the moral compass of who Jesus Christ is. It must always, that's the stake that we always come back to and say, well now, if I really love or if He really loves, how does that match with what I understand about who Christ is and wants to be to me? Right? So Paul begins with that statement. And in order to avoid that sort of pretension of love, the, the, the uh, insistence that it is there when it really is not, Paul then goes on to describe it and to elaborate on what it is. Look at verse verse 9b, the rest of that particular verse. Let love be without hypocrisy. Let there be no pretension in love. Let it be the genuine thing. And then he goes on to describe it. First of all, with this statement. These two statements that I believe go together as a unit. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. When you... Evaluate the relationship that you're in or the relationship that you would like to be in. The first description, that I believe, that Paul gives us of what Christ-like love is really like, the love that God intends us to experience and to grow in our understanding of, is this. It is a person... And there's a description of the guy that I think you're looking for. He's a guy who lives... And I'm going to use a kind of a, a heavy word, but I'll explain what it means, antithetically. That sounds kind of abstract. But this is what I, what I think Paul means by that. He's a guy who is really committed, and the words that are used here are very strong words. The word cling is a word for glue that is used in extra-biblical language. He is committed to the belief that there is black and there is white, and I will do nothing to change the definitions of what is black and what is white. To impact the men around us, our friends, and even our own family members, in such a way that they're growing themselves into biblical manhood. God, what a marvelous thing it is to see you use men in the lives of women and women in the lives of men to bring glory and honor to yourself. God, help us to continue in that commitment. In Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.